Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again, and I have The Consummate Leader. Holistic Guide to Inspiring Growth in Others and in Yourself. And I have Patricia Thompson on the line today. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the cover. You've got the watering can watering these growing plants. Uh, What is this metaphor all about? Yeah, I mean, the metaphor behind the book is really about growing within yourself and growing other people. And so the idea in the cover of the book is that by using some of these words that are coming out of the watering can, words like positivity, authenticity, self-awareness, confidence, and spirituality, you can experience growth as a leader, but you can also foster growth in those around you. Nice. Yeah. So what qualifies you to be able to uh, kind of write stuff like that? Well, I'm a corporate psychologist and I have been doing executive coaching and leadership development with senior leaders for over 10 years. Um, And I have a PhD in clinical psychology. And so I would say, you know, in getting that degree, I learned a little bit about human nature and how to inspire and engage other people. And in doing that, um, have also done that with the book as well. Hmm. So what's the difference between a, a, a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Besides six more years of school. (laughs) Well, psychologists go through a lot of school too. Um, But I would say um, psychiatrists go to medical school and psychologists go to graduate school. And in a graduate program, psychologists tend to focus on things like therapy and how to work with people to promote change across time. Um, Psychiatrists tend to learn more about medicine since they're in a medical school and how to prescribe medication. And so psychiatrists would be who you would go to for meds if you had a specific issue. A psychologist would be who you would go to for talk therapy. So basically, uh, psychology is much, much uh, better for your kidneys. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I know. Being a professional, you cannot uh, talk like that. I don't, I don't know the side effects of for your kidneys of seeing a, psychi- a psychologist, I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, unless they, they insist that you drink a lot. Right. <laughs> uh, let's talk about, you know, you, you use the word uh, a corporate psychologist. Um, what's the difference? Yeah, so basically a corporate psychologist applies psychological principles in business settings. And so my clients across the past 10 years have been organizations who will bring me in to help them to make better decisions about people or to, you know, develop the people within their organization. Um, And so really the problems that I'm solving would be corporate problems. Mm. Uh, Is that more, are you on C-suite level when you're doing that or is it C-suite and HR um, depends on the organization, but primarily C-suite and senior levels. Sometimes we're brought in within HR, but you know, if the C-suite isn't on board, then uh, there's only so successful we're going to be. So ideally, it would be a C-suite engagement that I'd be working on. Yeah, and then you go down and terrorize the guys in HR. Yeah, and, and the other parts of the business too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about you know C-suite. Uh, what do you think the, the, the fundamental problem C-suites have these days, uh, you know, as a, a person that's going in and then trying to help people uh, deal with uh, pressure, deal with angst, deal with uh, anger management, whatever it is that you run into? For you, what do you think the, the, the fundamental thing that, that people that are, that are listening to the show and are in a C-suite or, or senior management position, what should they be more aware of? 
Um, well, I think it really varies depending on the culture of the organization. But one thing that I would say is that um, a lot of C-suite executives can be kind of so far removed from what's going on down in the business that they can lose touch with some of the emotional elements. And so, you know, if they're thinking about issues like employee engagement or leadership development or things like that, a lot of times they're looking at them from a very sort of logical data-based perspective or they're looking at them through their own lens as someone in the C-suite and they can have a hard time, you know, empathizing what's what it's really like to be someone lower down in the business. And so I think by, you know, thinking not only about what's meaningful to them up in the C-suite, but also thinking about what's meaningful to people lower down, that's how they can really um, expand their influence. Hmm. Uh, you were, used the word there, empathy, which is seems to be the big new magical word where uh, large organizations, even small organizations, are very aware that they have to be more... Uh, on their feminine side, uh, more empathetic, uh, more nurturing compared to the older style of business that's been going on since the 50s or probably even uh, earlier. Uh, Are you noticing that as well? Yeah, and I think, you know, for some people, um, it's an easier sell than others, but the data supports that, you know, taking a sort of approach that also takes the whole person into account is really important. And I mean, I think it makes intuitive sense that, you know, most people would prefer to work for someone who is nice to them, who thinks about them as a whole person, who's interested in making their work meaningful. And when you're in that sort of environment, you're much more likely to be engaged and excited about the work that you're doing, as opposed to feeling like, you know, someone is just trying to tell you to put your nose to the grindstone and work as hard as you can for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, one is much more um, motivational than the other. Do a lot of the people that are trying to evolve in this direction have a a kickback saying, but I'll be perceived as weak? Do you think that's a fundamental problem with their psychology? Um, Some people can have that approach, or I think some people, you know, just might not know how to do it. It's kind of like if you think of being balanced as a person, um, they've really worked on this database, logical, hard driving side and just haven't worked as much on the softer side. And so for a lot of them, it can just feel like, you know, they're kind of putting their pen in their other hand and having to write with their non-dominant hand. And they just don't feel as comfortable or as proficient doing it. So how do you think uh, a person should proceed if they decide to go in that direction? Well, I think one thing I would say to start with is to try and become more self-aware. And actually in the book, I make the point that self-awareness really is the foundation for all strong leadership. And if you think of emotional intelligence models, they all talk about self-awareness being important. And so, um, you know, really get an assessment of, you know, what do you think are your strengths? because I still think it's important to really be leveraging those, but also what are the areas that you need to work on? And if one of the areas that you need to work on is becoming more empathetic or focusing more on relationships, then really set that as a targeted goal and think about specific things that you could be doing to that end. And so, you know, one thing that you could do, for example, is take some time to relate to people on a more personal level just so that you can start to foster those relationships. Um, Something else that you could do is if you happen to have other people in the business who are really good at the emotional side of things, then, you know, when you're making a decision or when you're writing up some sort of presentation that you're going to make, run it past that person so that they can say, yeah, this sounds good. Oh, have you thought about this? And, you know, you might need to insert, you know, 
this idea here, that sort of thing, just using people around you to coach you so that you can really develop that side of yourself. Mm. You know, you talk about authenticity in the book and uh, people should embrace it. Uh, How does one discover their authenticity? Yeah, you know, um, it's funny because in my work with leaders, I think people have varied in terms of their comfort with being authentic. I found that with a lot of women, what they can tend to do is dull themselves down and feel that they have to be really agreeable all the time and, um, you know, not kind of uh, create any waves in the business. Um, And so while they might have specific opinions that they're not expressing, they... um, you know, just aren't getting taken as seriously. And so in a sense, by not being authentic, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Um, on the other side, you could have people like the example that you gave, someone who maybe thought that to be a leader is to be really hard driving and tough. And they might have a softer side that they feel like they can't really share because that's not what a leader does. And so, you know, for most people, what I found is getting more in touch with their authentic selves just means letting all the different aspects of themselves show a little bit more in the workplace so that people can connect with them more on a genuine level. Hmm. You know, it, describing that, it, it almost sounds like for a lot of these people psychologically that it would be the equivalent of, of coming out of the closet if you were gay. You know, it's yeah. that type of terror. It's like, oh, I will, I will, I'm going to lose my job. I'm this and this. And they build up and they get all freaked out. And then that becomes an excuse for them not to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think to be authentic um, makes you a little bit more vulnerable in some ways because you're no longer self-protecting. And so you're saying, this is who I am and how are people going to respond to that? You know, my experience has been in the most part that um, people who are afraid of what's going to happen if they speak up or if they share more themselves tend to find that it's not really a big a deal as they thought it might be. But it can feel like a big risk, I guess, because you've convinced yourself that it is. Well, I guess with everything that's human nature, if you're trying something for the first time, you've got all these questions. It's like driving for the first time. You're a terrible driver because you're trying to be the best driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a bit about how to tackle your book because this is a viscous book. There's a lot going on here. I mean, it, it's written. It's very light. It's very funny. I mean, gosh, you, you, you reference uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, so, you know uh, – but, you know, it's broken down quite nicely into nine sections. Um, should the person read cover to cover? Can they jump in and just go to chapter three and get into spirituality because that's uh, they're more of a spiritual person and they want to really nail it down? Or should they kind of read from the forward onwards? I think it's probably best approach if you read from the forward onwards. Um you know, I kind of wrote it sequentially and the different characteristics that I talk about in terms of consummate leadership really build upon each other. And so while you could jump in in the middle and and read a particular chapter that was of interest to you and you could get some benefit from it, I feel like you would get the most benefit if you've read from the beginning and kind of thought through the various other issues that I talk about earlier in the book. Hmm. Now, is this because this is the same pattern you try and employ when you're dealing with a customer on the couch? Um, In some ways, you know, at at least at the very least, I like to start with self-awareness. And so everybody who I start with, I try to have them really get a sense of who they are as an individual, you know, what their strengths are, what their developmental opportunities, where their areas for growth are, you know, what kind of feedback they've received so that they can start from 
a well-informed position of knowing kind of where they're starting from. And then once you have that, then you can kind of figure out what areas you need to work on based on their areas of growth. Mm-hmm. So in reading the book, I would say at least start with the chapter on self-awareness. And then, you know, once you know what you need to work on, you could go to other chapters if you want. Hmm. You know, I, I ask this question of almost every single person I have on the show, and I've always uh, called it your aha moment, but maybe it's a sh- self-awareness moment. Um, you know, you, you're, you've studied a lot, you've done a lot of this, you, you've talked to many, many, many people, and now you've put it into a book form, so there is a fundamental psychological shift from what you have in your head, and when you put it down on paper, things crystallize. When you were doing this, uh, for you, what was your biggest aha moment where something totally crystallized and you say, wow, I get that now. Uh, I knew it before, but now I get it right down to the core. I would say one of the aha moments I probably had was after the book was published Mm -hmm. in that I learned that it spoke to people beyond just leadership. And um, I had been writing it for an audience of leaders or aspiring leaders. Um, But what I found was that a lot of the concepts about, you know, understanding who you are as a person, making sure you have a sense of purpose, being authentic and positive and, you know, building relationships with people and all those sorts of issues were really universal. Um, And I purposely wrote the book to bring those into business because I think that they're not paid attention to enough in the business world. Um, But what I found was that it spoke to a lot of people. Like, you know, people said, oh, I'm going to get this for my college student child because I think that this would be really important for he or she to think about. Or, you know, somebody else who's a stay-at-home mom thinking that this was something that she could focus on as well. Um, So, yeah, I guess just how universal the principles were was something that was of interest to me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, For... You know, somebody that that doesn't have a heck of a lot of time, and it kind of it's going to go back to to a similar question I asked you. But for somebody that doesn't have a lot of time, um, and they wanted to just jump into get the book to jump to a spe- specific thing like um, self management or uh, to redefining what they feel a leader is or authenticity, um, do you think they'd still get away with just reading that section to? deal with that part because I would assume a lot of people when they come to see you um, or you go to see them to help them out in an organization, part of the conversation is where are you right now? What's bothering you right now? You don't go dial it all the way back to childhood. You kind of find out what's bugging them now. What's their motivator? So a lot of people will pick up your book because they're struggling with um, authenticity or they're struggling with uh, feeling good about themselves. Uh, Do you think if they do that and they they get it and then they go back to the beginning of the book and read forward or not have a time not have time to do it do you think that's healthy I mean, I think they could still benefit from it. Um, The way that I designed the book was that I, in each chapter, included case studies. I talked about the research in each area, and then I also included exercises. And so you could definitely, you know, work through the exercises in an area and benefit from it. Um, But I do think still going back and reading the whole thing is helpful just to make sure that you're a well-rounded leader. And I guess, you know, the whole idea about a holistic guide to inspiring growth is because I really think it's important to think of yourself as a whole person. And, you know, what you think might be the issue could be the issue sort of on a very practical level, but you'll find that there could be other aspects of yourself that feed into a successful resolution of the issue. Mm. Well, yeah, and, and you, you will, if you're lucky, you'll discover that the issue isn't, isn't actually the issue. There is something behind that issue that has created the issue. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Getting down to the core. 
Yeah. Let's talk about SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> Why the heck did you use? Is he a fan of yours? Uh, have you uh, done therapy with him? <laughs> I haven't actually, no. Um, the reason why I used him as an example, actually, is because I have a nephew who is nine. Um, and when he would come over, he would watch that show. And I kind of had one of those relationships with the show where I liked it. Like I found it funny, but also simultaneously irritating. <laughs> um, and uh, so it was just on my mind as I was writing that chapter. And the story behind SpongeBob SquarePants is just that he's someone who is very, very optimistic, kind of like... Um, I guess, uh, irrevocably optimistic. Mm. Um, and what they found actually in terms of research is that people who tend to lean more on the optimistic side tend to have better outcomes in most um, areas. There are some exceptions, which would be accountants and lawyers. Um, but other than that, people who are more optimistic tend to do better, like in terms of sales and in terms of um, confidence and in terms of resilience and in terms of taking on challenges. And so he was just my example of optimism. Yeah, and he is like the ultimate optimist. <laughs> yeah, he really is. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember years back, uh, there was a, a psychologist went through and actually uh, wrote down all the clinical descriptions for everybody in Winnie the Pooh. I've seen those. Yeah, I've seen that. Very I can't funny. remember them. I can't remember them. Well, the Eeyore <laughs> is like manic depressive. Right, that's right. And, uh, and Christopher, somebody... Rob, Christopher Robin, I think he, had, he was in a delusional state because he talked to animals that were stuffed. <laughs> I know one of them had ADHD. Maybe that was Piglet, I want to say. I don't remember. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that would have been Tigger, would have been ADHD. Bouncing yeah, that, that's place. probably true. Or yeah. manic, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when you're when you're talking with with leaders and, and helping them, are you seeing an ongoing pattern where there's a fundamental misconnect uh, with with education, leadership, or or how a, a a person starts out in a company and then ends up being a leader? However, they become the leader. Is there a fundamental reality disconnect with pattern that you're seeing with them? Um, I guess one thing that I have seen as a disconnect is that people's perceptions of what it will be like to lead can mm -hmm. often feel very different than when they're actually in the role. Um, I think that sometimes leadership for a lot of people can feel um, more thankless maybe than they thought it would have been mm -hmm. or maybe a little bit lonelier as well. Um, what they find is that you know very often people who are reporting to them, even though, you know, they're adults, don't always do what they would want them to do or don't always play nice together in the sandbox. And so um, I think for a lot of leaders, really having to pay attention to the psychological elements is something that maybe they hadn't put as much thought into before. But once they start leading people, they realize that, hey, I, I really need to think about these different personalities and how to inspire people and how to get this person to work with this person or get the best out of this person, you know, all those sorts of issues that they hadn't thought about. Mm. What about, um, and I think this is a fundamental thing with all leaders, uh, not truly believing that they should be the leader and being terrified that one day they're going to be found out that they're, they're a fraud, not realizing that they're actually an amazing leader. Yeah, there. I think you see that too. I mean, there are definitely some leaders who maybe should feel that way who don't. <laughs> but yeah. there are also some really highly qualified leaders, I think, who do suffer from that imposter syndrome and, you know, are humble, but maybe too humble to their own deficit. So yeah, you do see that sometimes too, where they, it's almost like they feel like they're in grown up clothes, but they're not really the grown up yet. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it's a balance. And, and uh, it, I think, you know, you, you look at all the different uh, personality tests you can do and, you know, he's a YMCL or whatever. Um, I think as a leader, you, you have to be kind of conscious of the way people absorb information. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a lot easier one-on-one if you know, okay, this guy, he likes to analyze stuff, so I'm going to talk and then shut up and let him analyze and then get back to me. But if you're doing that at a meeting or you're trying to move a project forward and getting everybody on board, it becomes increasingly more difficult uh, the more people that you're trying to communicate to. It's true. And I, I think for that reason, when you're crafting a message, especially an important message, you really have to think about making sure that it's broad enough or you're hitting enough points that you're going to be hitting the sweet spots of the various people in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, so for those who like a big picture approach, give them the big picture rationale to start. For those who have questions about the details, give them some details. You know, for those who are inspired by data or like that's how they make decisions, make sure you're giving data, but also talk about the impact that a decision is going to have on people for people for whom that is important. And so really being a leader does require a lot of juggling and I guess um, psychological sophistication if you're doing it well. Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's actually, it, it's a very, very difficult thing to communicate uh, in a corporate environment because you have different language sets, you have different acronyms. Uh, when you're talking to upper management, it's a totally different vocabulary than middle management. And a lot of time there there's a structural um, uh, destructuralization basically because what the CEO is saying to his upper management, the upper management is basically uh, mimicking what they're saying and they're not reconfiguring the communication to the next one down. And by the time it gets down to the people that really need the information, uh, they don't know what the heck they're talking about. Right. Or it's being conveyed in such a way that doesn't resonate with them at all, that Mm. it just feels like they're doing something because corporate told them to, as opposed to really understanding the the big picture rationale for it. Yeah. The the disgruntled agreement. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So getting back to the, to, to, you know, leaders being at a table, pushing forward uh, a concept and getting people to agree. um, Do you have any uh, advice for getting people on board, even if you don't have 100% agreement? Yeah, well, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that you might not have 100% agreement. And a lot of the time, you probably won't have 100% agreement. And if you're aiming for 100% agreement, then you might actually be veering into the territory of artificial harmony, where people are feeling like they have to agree with you, but they're really not on board about it. Um, I think that the healthiest teams really have the sort of culture where they recognize that people can get all their opinions out on the table, kind of have the best thinking, have productive conflict, and then realize that everybody might not necessarily agree with it. But, you know, based on all the information that's been put on the table, we're going to come up with the best possible decision that we can. And for those of you who didn't agree with it, you know, get emotionally on board behind it, because this is the direction that we're going. You know, next time, We might go in a direction that you like that somebody else might not like. But I think that if um, leaders are really aiming for consensus, that can have the, um, that can backfire, I guess, and that people can feel like they have to agree um, and can't really give their opinions. Yeah, or, or, or agree disgruntledly and then sabotage. Right. Agree in present and then go and, you know, talk after the meeting, the meeting after the meeting where everybody says what they really think. Mm. So how do you open up the conversation where you say, well, I want to have the meeting after the meeting right now? 
Yeah, I think for a lot of teams that really takes some effort. Um, and I found that what's most helpful is actually having some outside help. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just because, you know, just like with a family, let's say if they're um, trying to deal with some problem issue, it can really be difficult because everybody is a member of the family. And so there's no really objective person who can call people on stuff. Mm. Um, but very often, if you have an outside facilitator, you know, sometimes the person who's a leader could be part of the issue. And the outside facilitator, you know, can in a professional way kind of point that out or bring people on board or, you know, just, just kind of say the things that nobody else is willing to say until they feel safe. And then I think across time, as you get more safety in the group and more trust and people see that there are new guidelines for how the group will interact, then they don't need the, the facilitator anymore. But it can be hard for a team to get there on their own. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's, um, yeah, it's fascinating, actually, because, you know, I've been through lots of leadership programs where they brought somebody on board. And I think the biggest disconnect was, uh, senior management said, okay, you guys are going to spend three days and we're, we're sending you off to this amazing, amazing place and you're going to work really hard and write all this stuff down. Then you come back and they don't even want to listen to you. So, you know. Yeah, no, I agree that the, I think that the leader needs to be part of it because, you know, I've been part of those too, actually, where, um, you know, sometimes when you're coming in as a consultant, there's only so much control you have. And so, you know, you might be doing some sort of a training and the leaders are there and they might be like on their phones or something like that and kind of missing the point of the issue. And at that point, you know, like there's really not much change that's going to happen because the tone is set from the top. So it's it's kind of, again, like to use a family example, if there's an issue with the parents and they're saying, OK, go fix my kid and then bring them back, you, you know that there's only so much that's going to happen. Yeah, you got to fix the parent first. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is something that uh, our listening audience can do today to become a better leader? Um, I would say one place that's really important to start is just focus on w making work meaningful um, for people and just recognize that what's meaningful to you isn't necessarily meaningful to everyone else. Mm. Um, and there was actually a recent study that was done by McKinsey, and they found that a lot of times leaders would, you know, to inspire people, talk about sort of the good to great story, like, oh, we're good, but we can be great if we do more work or, you know, we need to turn around. And so this is our opportunity to turn the business around for the better. And what they found is that even though that's the story most leaders told, that story only resonates with about 20% of the population. Mm. And so they were losing 80 percent of their employees um, just by not speaking in a language that was meaningful to them. And so think about things like, you know, talking about how something, um, you know, is meaningful to the community or to each individual or to the teamwork or to, you know, um, the business, um, those sorts of things. But really think about making work meaningful. Um, and that really gets people inspired. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's almost like you have to, like I was talking earlier, create a series of communication pieces um, and, and use things like stories that will harmonize with that particular group. Discovering where that group is in your organization and being able to communicate to just that group is the tricky part. It is. And like I said, you know, being a leader is juggling a lot of balls. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people um, 
get put into leadership positions based on, you know, being really good individual performers. And then the expectation is they'll just kind of figure out how to be a good leader. (laughs) Uh, But that doesn't tend to work. Um, And, you know, I think people vary in terms of how much coaching they get from their bosses. Um, But, you know, in an ideal organization, they would really do more leadership development training, just knowing that people don't necessarily have these skills just across the board and really need some help. Mm. Uh, what, you know, you just mentioned something, the, the leadership, core leadership values or core leadership skill sets. Um, you know, there's been lots of books written about that. But for you, you know, because you're out there in the trenches talking with these, these people and, and, and getting live feedback, where do you think uh, they're failing on that 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 part that they're uh, – they're overcompensating one way, so weakening uh, another part, or, or what do you think? Um, I would say, like, if I'm speaking really generally, where a lot of leaders fail, surprisingly, is in the coaching and developing arena. Um, I think that a lot of times leaders get so focused on just the doing of all the tasks that they have to get done and, you know, delegating those tasks out to their people and accomplishing the goals that they don't spend enough time coaching and developing people. I think um, coaching and developing is something where it's not as tangible in terms of the outcomes. And so a lot of times they don't focus on that. Or, you know, it could be sort of a longer range sort of thing that you're working on if you're developing someone. Um, And so they get very caught up, I think, in the here and now of just like checking something off a to-do list as opposed to really getting their people better to be, you know, the leaders of tomorrow. Mm. Well, yeah. And also if you're, you know, if you're in the leadership team and, and we're, you know, CEO, CFO, the owner of the company, you're really supposed to be the visionary and you're supposed to delegate 99% of your responsibilities so you can stay in the vision headspace and then basically visit people and coach them. Really, mm-hmm. if you're a great leader, you shouldn't be rolling up your sleeves and actually doing the work. It's true. And I think even with the delegating of tasks down, they're, they're delegating, but they're not coaching. And so... Um, Everybody has, you know, developmental opportunities. And I think, you know, if you're really doing your job as a leader, you're helping people to be able to succeed you. And a lot of organizations, the leaders are just focused on the here and now and not thinking at all about succession planning or developing the talent. Well, and I think that's uh, a lot of that is based on what's been happening economically, where people are basically, you know, if I don't have this baby up and running, nobody's going to have a job tomorrow. I would say that's true to some extent, but I would say even before the recession hit, um, I saw a similar trend in terms of just not focusing as much on coaching people. Mm. I think just, you know, as you move up in in the corporate ladder, I think more and more people are um, data-based and analytical and less kind of on the emotional side. Um, And so a lot of times you're just not thinking about those psychological elements to the same extent. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess you have to track your vision a little bit, and the best way to do that is by numbers. But you're right; it takes a human element out, and that could be the thing that makes the your your endeavors or your vision actually happen. Yeah, and I, I guess the point that I'm making is not that you shouldn't focus on numbers, because clearly in a business that's what you need to focus on. Um, the point I'm making is just that I think there needs to be a balance, and if you focus on coaching and developing people, then that actually should uh, make it easier for you to hit your numbers if everybody's performing at a higher level. Yeah, well, I think the for me the fundamental frustration I see in a lot of um, upper management people is that 
they're delegating, but they're not managing the delegation in the sense that I need this done. Joe, get this done. And I need it done by Wednesday. And then on Wednesday, that's the next time they communicate instead of picking up the phone on Friday and say, how's that going? Do you need any input? Are you stuck on anything? Great. Let's touch bases on Monday. Are you going to be able to hit your deadline? Uh, Just little things like that is going to motivate that person saying, wow, okay, Bob's on on my side. He's going to help me out. I actually did have a question. Great. And if he solves it, now I can work over the weekend and on Monday be feeling a lot more confident about being able to hit my deadline. Right. I think there's that. And I think the other piece of it too is, you know, once the task has been completed, does the person kind of think, okay, if you were to do this again next time, what might we fine tune on? Like, did you have an issue influencing people in this part of the business? Here are some strategies I use in terms of influencing more effectively when I don't have, you know, authority over someone, like really using those as teaching moments. Mm. Um, One of the largest or most difficult psychological shifts I feel for people that are learning to become great managers or great leaders is the uh, ability to accept what's giving to them, uh, like a project that they've given out, and when they get it back, not look at it as like, well, I would have done it differently, so this is wrong. It's like, does it get done what I need to get done? It may not be 100%, but it's good enough. Yeah, that, that is a big uh, learning curve for delegation. Most definitely, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> so how do people overcome that? Because it's it's a huge problem. Well, I think once you become senior enough, that's something that you just eventually have to get your mind around because you only have so many hours in a day. And so, you know, on a very practical level, it's impossible for you to get everything done the exact way that you would want it to get done mm. or ex- or exactly the way that you would do it, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing is just being open-minded and really looking for the value in an approach that someone else brought to the table. I mean, ideally as a leader, what you're trying to do is create a team of diverse, smart, and talented people who you can learn from as well, not putting yourself in the position of feeling like you have to know everything. And so if you can recognize that your team is a resource and you have all of this talent at your disposal, then you really should be letting them um, you know, do some running and kind of working on their own if you feel like you've created a good team. Mm. Do you think a lot of that's guilt driven where it's like, oh, I should be doing the work. I'm, you know, why are they paying me all this money if I'm not doing anything? Um, for some, I think, you know, different people get into leadership. Some, you know, are very dominant and just have very strong opinions about how things should get done. Mm. And so it might not have anything to do with guilt. It might just be believing that their way is the right way. Um, and I think for some, again, they're not groomed into knowing what it means to be a leader. And so they just don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And so they're not recognizing that to be a leader is really to be an orchestrator. They Mm. are still caught up in doing mode. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, before we run away, how can people get a hold of you? How can they learn more about the book? Do you have a blog? Yeah, so they can go to my website, um, www.patricia-thompson.com. Um, and there's information there actually about my book, The Consummate Leader. Um, it's also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So you can get the Kindle version or the um, hard copy if you wanted to as well. Um, so yeah, number of ways. Cool. And uh, one last question because it's a little on the psychological realm. Uh, <laughs> do you feel people perceive you differently now that you are an author? <laughs> I haven't experienced that, no. Oh, my but I God. don't I don't exactly lead with being an author. I, I guess um, 
I don't know. I guess it's the same thing. Like, did did people perceive me differently when I got the the PhD title? And I think probably they do, but because I don't really perceive myself differently, maybe I don't pay attention to that. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, it's a good point. You know, having a doctorate, uh, that is kind of like a big um, social stamp that, that people say, ooh, she must know what she's talking about because she's got a PhD. Uh, and people that don't have a PhD but do publish a book, they say, well, he's a writer, so they must know what they're talking about. Uh, dealing with that type of perception, uh, do you think that's a disconnect? Do you think that's just people being lazy? And, and just assuming that I know what I'm talking about? Or, yeah, or anybody, sure. yeah, anybody with a title, they must know what they're talking about, so I shouldn't question them. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess sometimes people are socialized to think that way. Um, I think because I've been around a lot of people with titles, I recognize that's not necessarily true, <laughs> which is maybe why I put less credence into the fact that I have a title or that I've written a book. I just think of myself as a person who wrote a book who happened to have a PhD. Mm. Well, that's a very holistic way of looking at things. And it makes for, for you've got to, what is it, uh, walk the talk, and uh, what's that? Walk the walk and talk the talk. Yeah, I, I guess like that's that. probably true. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of it that way. Uh, okay, we've been talking about the consummate leader, a holistic guide to inspiring growth in others and yourself. And I've had Patricia Thompson on the line today. And gosh, a great book. Uh, we didn't talk about it in too much detail, but man, we sure learned a lot. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.